And all of this led to, you know, essentially one of the biggest regrets of my entire life this far. It's very common uh, to play the woulda, shoulda, coulda, if I'd only. Maybe things would have been different game. And uh, I played that game a lot after he died. If I called the night that he wasn't answering my text, could I have done something about it? I mean, there's just all these things that always go through your mind. And the reality is, is that we don't know. I just said a lot of not great things to him. And then I left. I think in that moment, a little of compa- a little bit of compassion and understanding would have gone a lot farther than what I ended up doing. We say things that we don't mean to people that we love because they've hurt us, you know, and sometimes sometimes it's because in that moment, whether you know it or not, you want to hurt them back. Hey, how's it going? Eh, you know, it's going. All right. So uh, welcome back. I think we're just going to hop right into it. So um, at the end of the last episode, you know, he came I came downstairs and and uh, found him found him drunk. Um, You know, and I could tell after he'd been sober for. Yeah, for a couple of months. Yeah. And of course, you know, kind of like what we said before. um. As soon as you and I both knew what was going on with him in the first place, like there was no way that he was going to be able to sneak it anymore without us noticing. No. And that was exactly what happened is, you know, he was trying to sneak it, trying to get by because he knew both he, you were going to be working all weekend, you know, night shift. So you're going to be sleeping during the day and working. I was supposed to go to my friends all weekend. So like he kind of had the weekend to himself at home. And as I was getting ready to leave, I came downstairs and. And he was obviously intoxicated and I confronted him right away. I was like, you know, I I went to say goodbye to him and I was like, have you been drinking? You know, and he goes, he goes, no, no. And I was like, yeah, you don't lie to me. Like, I can tell. And he's like, no, I'm just tired, like trying to play off the sleep thing again. I was like, no, (laughs) like, I know you well enough at this point. Like, don't lie to me. Have you been drinking? And he kept denying it, kept denying it. I said, okay, fine. And I, um, and I was pretty mad at this point, like internally. I kind of kept, I kept my cool in that moment because I, you know, I think he just expected me to just leave and like leave him alone. And, uh, and so I went and like started packing up my car and you know, so I walked through the garage and everything, and I knew that he previously had been hiding his stuff in the garage. So I went and to go search, you know, where he where he would always go. And I didn't know where he normally would hide it, but I knew what I was looking for. So I knew I was looking for some form of alcohol and I'm searching around. Probably took me 20 minutes. And I found a half empty bottle of vodka back there. And, and where Oh, yeah, we're not telling where we had it because we don't want no ideas for other people. <laughs> Never mind. Um, it was, it, it, I'm going to tell you, it was, it was ingenious in terms yeah, of. Yeah, I mean. But 
I don't. I mean, it want was, it, to encourage <laughs> others who are struggling to have a new hiding place. <laughs> and I will say, if you are a person who is struggling with having a spouse or a family member that you suspect might be doing this and would like to know maybe where to check and maybe they have some weird garage habits you can reach out to us via our email and we can share it with you but publicly i don't think we need to be putting that idea out there yeah um but anyway so i find it and i think at that point I called you and I, you know, you were like just getting to work or just at work or whatever. Yeah. And I overnight, I basically was like, dad's drinking. I found the bottle in the garage. You know, I'm, I was about to leave and I came down, you know, I basically told you the whole story and I was like, what should I do? And you said, well, I'll deal with it in the morning. Like just dump out the bottle and whatever. And, um, I don't remember exactly what you told me to do, but I remember I went out to the front yard and started dumping out the bottle. And as I was doing that and on the phone with you, he came out through the garage door, um, like through the from the house into the garage and like opened the door and saw me pouring out his his the vodka. And I saw him and I held up the bottle and said something along the lines of like, I found it. You lied to me you know, and then I threw it away and he just kind of like, I could tell he was feeling guilty and he just kind of shut the door and went back inside, you know, and, um, I don't remember. I, I, I essentially ended the conversation with you and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I was pretty upset and very angry with him. Um, and, and rightfully so, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I, the mean, thing, so... I think the thing that was hardest about this whole situation for both of us is that this man had been in my life for 20 years. He was your dad for your whole 18 years of life, almost 18 years of life. And this man had not lied to us before. He had not kept things hidden. He was not deceptive he didn't do that stuff and so to have this totally different person to have emerged in this last handful of months that was a very short period of time that was someone that we didn't recognize on lots of levels and we're dealing with the hurt and the betrayal that comes with i've just been lied to for months and months and months you being angry, especially because again, now the secret was out, right? Well, and I we and all I we, we knew what was going gave, on. The thing was, is I confronted him and I gave him multiple opportunities to come clean and just say, "Yeah, you know, I made a mistake or whatever," and he chose to lie to my face. Um, right, and that was but also really hard, but. Well, caveat me, that that me, is part of the, the that's part of the disease. Not saying it that invalidates what was, your feelings. That's yeah, what sorry. I was getting to is <laughs> I just wanted to preface like obviously now I know that like any time basically with any addiction relapse is a thing that happens. It's almost 
zero percent of the time that somebody's going through, you know, trying to um, get out of addiction of any sort without having a relapse or two. And it can happen. Relapses. After being sober for 20 years, you can relapse. Yep. It is part of the recovery process. Relapse does not mean failure. It's how you deal with the relapse that matters. (laughs) Right. So, you know, but I didn't necessarily know that at that time either, that relapse was a part of this journey. So, you know, I thought things were getting better. I I thought things were done with. And, um, and so then suddenly in my mind, it was like, oh, great, he's back into it fully. You know, it wasn't just like for me, it didn't feel like it was just like, oh, just a one off thing. You know, like, we'll get through this. We'll fix it. It was, oh, you're fully back into hiding and lying and drinking. And like, I thought we were past this kind of deal. I know better now, and, but I didn't at that point. Well, and again, why would why wouldn't you feel that way? Because your entire life, he was the opposite. Right. So and it, so it, this this whole situation, this whole relapse, first time he the first time that we knew about that he had relapsed, you know, to this level where he was obviously intoxicated, about half a bottle of vodka was done. He clearly saw that we were both going to be pretty much MIA for the weekend. So he knew he had the weekend to himself. He knew he could hide it. Um, And so, of course, I was pretty livid. I was very upset. And I, um, and all of this led to, you know, essentially one of the biggest regrets of my entire life this far, which is that I went inside and I had a conversation with him and I was not nice to him. Um, you were angry. And, well, yeah, but still, um, and I, I said a lot of things that I think he probably already felt about himself. Um, and that weren't, that I really didn't truly feel. It was just in that moment, you know, that's how I felt. Um, but it, the way that I treated him that night is definitely one of the biggest regrets of my life. I called him a child. I said I didn't respect him anymore. Um, I said that, you know, I I said that I still loved him and I cared about him, but like that, that I thought that he was weak and had no self-control And because of that, I didn't respect him anymore. I said that he was acting like a child and that he, um, I just said a lot of not great things to him. And then I left. I didn't stick around. I left and I went to my friends for my, for the weekend. And I left him with that. And, um, It's become one of my biggest regrets because I never had the chance to resolve that with him because three weeks later he died. Uh, 
I never had the chance to readdress it or to tell him that that stuff wasn't true. And I think about like how, again, thinking back now, how in pain he was and the things that he probably told himself on a daily basis, which probably were much worse than the things that I said, but now him having, you know, that moment of me saying those things, um, now he had the added aspect of confirmation or validation that even my son thinks these things of me. So why shouldn't I? You know, and I, th- I, th- it's. I mean, like I said, it's my biggest regret in my entire life is that conversation that I had with him because he didn't deserve that. And as bad as I was feeling, he needed compassion in that moment. He needed understanding. And uh, I just put him down and probably made him feel a lot worse about himself. And one of the things that I've struggled with the most over um, over the last however many years is, I mean, feeling guilty for one thing, but also just Wondering if some of the things that I said were going through his mind on the night that he died. Because. And I just and I left him there all alone. For him to just sit in it. I went in, I was mad, I said a lot of things that I shouldn't have because because he made a little because he made a mistake. He was trying so hard. He was trying so hard to be better and he made a mistake and I reamed him for it. Yeah. And uh and I never got to apologize. I never got to resolve it. And I, I can't help but wonder if I made things worse for him internally. I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if any of us will ever know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I hate to see you upset like this. I understand that feeling, though, of um, there are things that I think about that I wish I had done differently. Um, There are things that make me really sad uh, about the stuff he was struggling with and the things that I missed. I think that it's very common uh, 
to play the woulda, shoulda, coulda, if I'd only. Maybe things would have been different game. And uh, I played that game a lot after he died, you know, as if uh, if I called the night that he wasn't answering my text, could I have done something about it? I mean, there's just all these things that always go through your mind. And the reality is, is that we don't know. We don't know what would have happened or not happened. And the one thing that I can tell you is that, and this is harder, I think, for you to understand right now because you don't have your own child and you're not a parent. (laughs) Um, But I think that many other parents would agree with me on this that no matter how much you might feel hurt that you've disappointed your child or that you've hurt them in some way or upset them or you feel bad about it you also recognize that like They're reacting in the moment. There's a level of maturity that comes when you become older and when when you're a parent that you can see beyond the fact that like, you know, like the, they're angry, right? And they're expressing their feelings. Um, and I know for a fact, I know without a doubt that like, if your dad were here, he would, he may have, he may have thought that he may have been thinking about that. He may have, it may have hit him in that moment, but in his healthy mind, if he, if he had not died, if he was still here with us, he would have absolutely told you that it was not your fault and that he understood where you were coming from. And like, I don't, you know, and I, I, I know that, that those types of things don't change the fact that it still sucks because you think about those things, you know, that well, you could have done differently. It's just, uh, well, I remember part of that conversation being like, you're supposed to be my dad. You're supposed to be the strong one. And here I am reprimanding you for, you know, doing something stupid and not being able to control yourself. And like, and, you know, I called him a child and then, and I said a lot of other things and I, but I think the thing that sucks the most about that is again, like I loved him so much. We were so close. Um and looking back and knowing how much he was struggling and how much in pain he was or how how much pain he was in. Um I just hate the fact that I added to it instead of trying to instead of taking away, especially in a moment that 
he did have some weakness and he did give into it. And again, in that moment, now it's shaped the way that I, that I, that, that is a lesson that I will never forget. And it has shaped the way that I interact with people forever in terms of when people make mistakes because he made a mistake. That's all it was. It was a relapse. It was, it was a very normal part of the, the process. And, um, I think in that moment, a little of compa- a little bit of compassion and understanding would have gone a lot farther than what I ended up doing. And obviously, I was 17 years old and didn't know any better and had never gone through anything like this before and didn't have the control of my emotions that I do now. But that doesn't change the fact that that's what I did. And yeah. it doesn't change the fact that I wish that I didn't um and it doesn't change the fact that he died and i never got to i never got to tell him i was sorry for that yeah yeah i i uh i think that there are a lot of people who can relate to that to what you've just shared Um, I'm sure there are a lot of younger people who have said things to their parents and something bad have happened and they wish that that hadn't happened and they regret that. And, or anybody in your life or I know I, the reason why I share that is because I know that that happens, that we say things that we don't mean to people that we love because they've hurt us, you know, and sometimes sometimes it's because in that moment, whether you know it or not, you want to hurt them back. And yeah. sometimes it's because you are angry and you want to see them better and you're too hard on them. And, you know, we all have been there. We've all done it. Yeah, um, I think. In normal circumstances, you know, it would have been resolved and we would have had a conversation later and we would have, you know, probably been closer because of it. But that's not what happened. Because how, yeah, that's because how we, that's how we rolled, you know, as a family. And I think for both of us, there was a lot of, uh, the hard, hardest part of, him dying was the fact that there was all this stuff that had just happened right up to his death that, that was, was so unresolved and yeah and left us all reeling yeah and you go back to the beginning of when we started the story not story i mean this journey because it's not a story this happened to us <laughs> this is this is the truth this is true fic- non-fiction um and you know we had said you know like we'll get into it but like him dying 
was complicated by the fact that there was all this stuff that just happened right before he died. Literally right before he died. And it made it so much more complicated with everyone else as well, because, you know, almost no one knew what was going on with our family. No, no. Um, I think outside of of your grandma, I don't think anybody had any idea um, that this was happening. And um, and And eventually, I think, especially after he died, I was going to. Yeah, I mean, eventually we would have told, you know, we would have gotten to a place where more people probably would have known about it, people we were close to and whatnot. But especially after he died, you know, they'd added a whole other layer to our grief because we couldn't even talk about it yet because we didn't uh, like like we've said before. We didn't want. If it if. If what he had died from had nothing to do with what we had been going through as a family, like we didn't want to taint his memory. We didn't want people to 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 talk about and got start the gossip mill about, you know, all of these things that had happened um, until we knew for sure, you know. And uh, it made it more challenging for us because we only could talk to each other and you know, maybe my yeah. grandma, but, um, yeah, it, it made that whole period of time while we were waiting for the autopsy results to finish, to get well, and the then, final answer, just challenging. And when you, when he did die, well, you were talking about, you were talking to me earlier about how, you know, because of all of these things that had happened and because of his relapse, like you were feeling worried the night before yeah do you want to talk about that yeah i think that um i mentioned it i mentioned it in the second episode when we actually talked about like from the time we woke up to finding out that he died um and i said you know i had you go first because i was like there's some context that i have to sort of play into this scenario as far as uh how we got to the point of figure like me being concerned that something was wrong um and the night before we found out that he had died i had had dinner with my sister and um when i and again we talked all the time we text even after all of this we still had constant communication even after knowing what was going on and him dealing with that stuff. Um, and he, uh, it was, yeah, it was like seven o'clock at night and he wasn't, I texted him to be like, Hey, I'm done with dinner. I'm going to go home. At that point he should have been back in his hotel room, like ready for the night um you know and again he stayed an extra night that wasn't um again not abnormal but like he was supposed to be home that day but like he had stayed an extra night and i just i had you know i knew he was dealing with this stuff and i had a weird feeling and i was a little bit concerned 
because he wasn't responding to me and um and uh and then I called him and he wasn't answering his phone call but again because he also does deal with the sleep issue the thing about the sleep issue I want to make really clear to you is that when we realized what was going on with him in terms of the alcohol we could clearly distinguish after that between his legitimate sleep episodes and the ones that were induced by alcohol like before we knew that was going on they kind of all seemed similar um but after that happened that's why when you said i can when he said i was i i'm just tired you're like no i can tell this is not the same yeah i, I knew Once, immediately that that was not the case Right. So once we knew, it was like the light bulb went on. We went, oh, okay. So like these are the little nuancy differences that would happen because he still had sleep issues. He still had insomnia that was not being fully treated. He still had sleep deprivation. He still had episodes. They got better as in like less frequent after he had stopped drinking because clearly the frequency of them had increased with the drinking. Um, But even within that, once he stopped drinking and we understood what was going on, we could very clearly immediately pick out this is a sleep thing. This is an alcohol thing. Like it just was so clear. Like, looking back not even like from the relapse or anything just looking back at his patterns going yeah okay so this was all alcohol related but like these ones you know so he clearly still had this sleep issue and i remember sitting there on the sidewalk in downtown minneapolis waiting for my uber to go home um, from dinner and I'm texting him like to say goodnight and touch base. I hadn't talked to him since that morning. And that was the morning that he told me he was going to be staying another night because he needed to take care of a customer issue. And again, not abnormal. He'd done that a million times. And it was like a legitimate thing that happened. It wasn't like something he used as an excuse to do whatever. Um, But I just, remember texting him not hearing back calling not hearing back and having that weird gut feeling like something's off and I hope he's not drinking but I also under the context of him just having a relapse a few weeks prior right and also like but then also recognizing that it isn't absolute it isn't abnormal for him to fall asleep early and seven seven thirty was not technically early. He's fallen asleep much earlier than that. Um, just because of the nature of his job and how tired he would get and the fact that he had sleep struggles. And I will say that that night I, I did debate. I debated if I should call like the hotel if I should have tried to get a hold of him through his room, if I should have somebody check on him, like it was a flitting, it fleeting thought through my head, but it, it did occur to me like it felt off, but I rationalized. So like you would talk about 
you know, regrets, right? I regret not listening to that little nickel of a worry and like taking the extra step and maybe being a little extra because, you know, I, you knew your dad, like he would have been just mortified and like annoyed if he literally was just like dead asleep and I like call the Calvary (laughs) at the hotel room and be like, oh, they're worried. They wanted to do a safety check on you. You know what I mean? Um, Because again, this wasn't something that was also abnormal. I mean, like it, it was such a conundrum for me because I was just like, It could be, but also am I being extra paranoid? And like, am I going to be that person? And like, I can't, you start to learn that like, you can't, um, when you're dealing with someone who's struggling with that kind of thing, you can't corral it. You know, you can't control what's happening or not happening. You can't like, they have they have to take the reins with it and like you can't babysit them and you can't like yeah but obviously the next morning when i find out he he died you know i often even to this day wonder if i had called or like the hotel cuz he i called his phone it wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't answering his phone. I remember texting him. I hope you're just asleep and you're not drinking because I'm a little bit worried that I haven't heard from you. I literally sent him that text. Obviously it never got read, you know, but like, yeah, I mean, to this day, sometimes I'm like, you know, maybe if I had become one of those people and called the hotel and like made them go check on him and open the door and you know whatever because to be perfectly honest the time frame that I called him and texted him and tried to figure out what was going on granted naked remember I hadn't slept for like probably 36 hours at this point because I had worked the night before overnight I was up the day before and then I stayed up all day so like I also was exhausted um and you know, I, I often think like, what what would have happened if I had just done that? Because the reality is, is, and we'll talk more about this when we get into the autopsy and like the police report and all the details that we had, but he checked himself back into the last time he used his key card to get into his room was 7.40 PM, like 7.40 or 7.41 PM and never left after that. And according to the coroner, the medical examiner, they estimated his time of death to be approximately 12 hours prior to when they found him. They found him at 1030 the next morning in the morning because that's when we called them in. So theoretically, based on all of that, he died within a few hours of me trying to get a hold of him. So yeah, there is a level of guilt of like, you know, again, should I have done more? Should I have been that person? I had a niggle of worry. 
was I, but then, you know, you go into the, like, am I overreacting? Am I just, you know, you, it's a really, it's a really tough place to be in. And I think that's why after a while you go through this place of like, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you could have done all those things and it still could have ended the same way. And like, sometimes just bad things, sometimes just bad things happen. You know, I think I think the important thing to remember, you know, when it comes to that guilt, because it often happens in these sorts of situations when somebody dies, especially especially in some um, in in a very sudden way like this or, or, you know, in a tragic way where it's not like illness that you're kind of expecting, you know, a terminal thing or, or old age or that sort of thing. You know, when it's an accidental death like this the people who are closest often feel the most guilty because they feel like they could have done something to change the outcome and the and the reality is is you don't really know you could have done all the right things and it still would have had the same outcome like there's no way of knowing and dwelling on it was all of an that accidental stuff, death <laughs> yeah i mean dwe- dwelling on all of that stuff ultimately ends up fruitless because you can't change the past anyways and all it does is cause you more pain. I think for me, you know, I don't think my that conversation would have changed the outcome of him dying. But I do, I still regret it because I wish that I was, I wish that I was nicer to him. I wish that I showed more love to him. I wish that I was more compassionate to what he was going through in that moment because even if he would have died the next, you know, even if he still was going to die the way that he did, at least, at least then I, at least then I didn't say things that I regret. Yeah. I think it comes down to, again, this is where that professional therapy becomes very important. It's, learning how to forgive yourself, right? Because my therapist That's not something I tend to be particularly good at. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people are good at that. We 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 live in a culture where we're self-critical and we take a lot of blame on ourselves for things that we wouldn't blame other people for or give compassion. I mean, we give compassion to all sorts of other people for all sorts of things. And yet we hold ourselves to a standard that it just, we, it's hard to show compassion for yourself. And, um, one of the things that my therapist used to say out to me all the time. Now, obviously I have different one because I don't live in the same state anymore, but, um, she would often, when I would start to feel really upset and sad and Sometimes guilt, sometimes regret, sometimes just this feeling of like, I just wish I had done this differently or I'd done that. And she she always had a really great question for me, which is true. And she used to say, you know him the best. And if he were sitting here right now and he knew everything that had happened, you know, like, and that you were dealing with this feeling of guilt or regret or sadness about something you did or said and, and whatnot. 
what would he say to you? Would he blame you for this? Would he feel like it was your fault? Would he feel like you should feel bad about those things? And realistically, no. The thing is, is honestly, in this situation, knowing him, uh, he would be blaming himself. (laughs) I mean, so much more than he would ever think to even you know, think badly or blame us. Um, He would be so incredibly hard on himself for all of this. You know, if he knew the outcome, you know, if he knew that he was going to die and and everything that would follow in our lives and all of those things, like, I don't, I don't know if he would ever forgive himself. And that also makes me really sad because it wasn't his fault either. That is one of the one things I really struggle with, and that makes me very sad as well, is that he, yeah, this is just exactly what you said. I think, but I do think that, like, realistically, I mean, we can feel bad for all the things that we did or didn't do, said or didn't say, all that stuff, but... In the grand scheme of things, we loved your dad more than anything. And he loved us more than anything. And I think you and I have talked about this before, but we both know with certainty that had he known that the outcome of what would have happened and the way that this accident happened and all the things that came after he would have done everything in his power to avoid that from happening. You know what I mean? Like, and I do think that had he not died accidentally, he would have come around. I do think I, I I definitely, Oh, I have, I have a very strong faith that, that he would have come around and resolved things because he, he already was feeling guilty for what he was putting us through. Like he had expressed that more than once. Um, and well, not even, you know, yeah, not that, e- that, not that even is like- something that I have full confidence in and that at yeah. some point he would have, he would have gotten through it and been better off for right. it on the other end. Yeah. I think the journey would have probably been just as difficult in different ways. I don't think it would have, it, it, he was in, such in the beginning process of it that like mm-hmm. you know I mean, it still would have been it it still would have been difficult but I do believe yeah. that he would have he would have pulled through. You know, one other thing too, after his relapse, I remember the only thing I remember between his relapse and when he died, there's two things. I remember the phone call I had with him on Tuesday night, two days well Two days before, so he would have died Wednesday night at like 10 o'clock and we found out Thursday. But I had, the last time I talked to him was Tuesday night and I don't remember the full thing of the conversation. He called me while I was on my way home from from work and uh, it was a pretty brief call, but you know, I will say that I'm happy that the last thing that I, that we had said to each other was that we loved each other. 
you know, that was the last thing I ever said to him was that I love him. But the other thing that I remember is, you know, in regards to the relapse, because he obviously like was in therapy and doing all of that stuff. He start he was talking to his therapist about it and he shared this with us um, kind of in the the way that his therapist um, gave a, an illustration or an analogy as to as to what happened and why he relapsed that he seemingly really resonated with, which was. Um, at least the way he and honestly it. totally made sense to us too it was a good analogy for us to be able to understand it as well yeah because i mean again at that point we didn't have the same knowledge about this process that we do now but um which was essentially that like you know alcohol for a long time has been your best friend you love your best friend you want to hang out with your best friend all the time but you realize it's a toxic relationship that's that's bringing you down and ruining your other relationships. It's like that friend that always convinces you to do dumb things and always convinces you to, it's bad association, right? And, uh, and so you've done a good job so far of, of cutting things off and, and, you know, avoiding doing things with your friend until one day you're at the store and you see your friend at the store. And cause that was the other thing is we're like, what, what made you relapse? And he, I think he said something along the lines of like, he was just walking. He was just in the store and can't, you know, and saw the alcohol there and just grabbed a bottle and bought it and brought it home. And like, it was just as simple of like that temptation of seeing it there, you know? And so the therapist, yeah, it wasn't made, anything crazy. It was, it was literally, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was super sad. It wasn't like he was going through having a moment and he wanted to feel better. It was literally just like, yeah, I was he doing didn't, fine. He didn't even understand it. <laughs> yeah. He didn't even, he's like, why we were like, why did you, you know, why did you relapse? And he's like, I don't know. I just was, I was just walking in the store and I saw a bottle of vodka. And before I knew it, I was at home drinking, you know? And the therapist basically said like, yeah, you ran into your best friend at the store and he asked you to hang out. And against your better judgment, you said, yeah, sure. We can just, you know, one one more one more time, like the good old days. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's what happened. And, um, you know, it doesn't. And that's part of addiction. That's part of relapse. It's part like anything, any sort of addiction, whether it be dr- alcohol, drug related or whether it be gambling or any of the other you know, millions of things you can become addicted to when you're trying to set yourself free from that relapse is a part of the process. It's almost, it's very, very rare that people don't relapse at some point or another. And it could be a week in, could be three months in, could be two years in, could be 10 years in. It doesn't matter. It, it oftentimes happens at one point or another. And like you said earlier, it's not about the relapse itself, it's not a, you know, it may feel like a setback or that you're starting over, but it's not. You've you've made so much progress already. One little relapse is not starting over. It's just a small step back, setback, you know, like you've taken it's how you 20 move steps forward. <laughs> right. You've taken 20 steps forward. You had a relapse. Now you've taken two steps back. Well, you're still a lot farther along than you were at the start. Yeah. You know, yeah, and so and, again, and I, it's, it's do you move forward or do you let that do you let that um, that setback make you crash and burn? 
Yeah. And I think that, and I think that, that that's where societal stigma comes in and these biases and opinions we have about what drug addiction is or who a drug addict is or who an alcoholic is or whatever. And so there's so much shame and embarrassment that comes with relapse because there are, there is a school of thought that it's like, if you relapse, like you've made the biggest mistake in the world, your life is over. Like now you've just, you know, you've ruined all the progress you've made. And the reality is, is that like you said, relapse is part of the process of recovery and sometimes the relapses are what teach you the things you need to continue to grow in your recovery well so, and it's sometimes not- sometimes on that same line uh the relapse is what teaches you how bad what you're doing how bad it actually affects your life because sometimes that you know, as well things start to get way better right and you're like, oh, you know, things are things are going good in my life, things are whatever. And then you're like, maybe I can handle it again. And you try it yeah. and then everything, you know, and then you realize, oh, this is what my life was like, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It can be that kind of realization as well. And, and go ahead. I was just going to say, so, you know, again, I think that as a society, as a culture, as people who... I I would bet at this point in time, all of us know at least one person that has issues with substances, right? You know, um, is to take that judgment and that bias and that stigma out of the equation, recognize that relapse is something that will happen. It's not about the fact that the person relapsed. It's about what they do after they relapse. So there is sometimes people who because they don't feel safe in using their resources to say i messed up and i had a few drinks or i took some pills or i went on a bender or i shot up or i did this and then there's a shame spiral that happens and then they just are like well i've already messed it up might as well just keep going right um yeah I'm and so, so I'm if so we stupid i can't can't i can't control myself you know you go through that negative self-talk spiral and, you, and right. it gets you to a po- it's very quickly that you get to a point where you're like well i'm just a, screw I'm it. just gonna mess it up I'm, anyways so screw yep. it i'm just gonna you know jump right back exactly. in the pool and so what is so important for the people who surround someone who is in recovery is to really go and be with them in no judgment about their thing that they're dealing with, right? It's if you're having a hard time and you feel like you want to use or you feel like you might relapse, you can come and talk to me. I am not going to judge you. I I will say, what do you need? What is going to help you? What's the next, like, what's your tools? You have a meeting. Do you have whatever? I'll drive you there. Like, or if someone comes. Love is a much stronger motivator than judgment. Yes. Judgment often, judgment will often lead somebody onto the path uh, that, onto the path. They start to hide it. They hide it because they, again, uh, their shame. It's a shame and embarrassment and, uh, and guilt and all the negative feelings that come with it. And, um, you know, I said that to my sister, uh, when she was in recovery, I said, 
you're, it, it's inevitable you're going to make mistakes at some point. It's not about making the mistakes. It's about what you do afterwards. So if you ever in that place where you are feeling tempted or you did trip up and make a mistake, it's not about the fact that you make a mistake. It's like, what did you do afterwards to fix it? Right? Like, so like, if you made a mistake, there's something. What lessons something, did you learn? Well, there's something you let slip, right? Like everybody, as they go through their recovery path, they find a process that works for them, whether it's going to AA meetings, NA meetings, whether there's a program they're involved in, whether they have some, you know, a therapist, a psychiatrist, they have some sort of community that they're involved. There's something that they do on a regular basis that keeps them accountable and focused on their sobriety. Like this is, it's like managing a disease. It's like having diabetes where you have to check your blood glucose your blood sugar every day and you know adjust your foods and maybe take some insulin and all that stuff like that's what addiction is like you have to manage it every minute of every day and be on top of it and so you put systems in place and that's what recovery is about you put systems in place that keep you on track with your health and so when someone relapses it means that there's something in their system something in their process, in their support system that has been helping them stay in recovery that has broken down, whether it's they're not talking to their sponsor anymore, they don't have, you know, the community that they've been involved in, they've stopped going to therapy. There's something that they're not doing that they were doing before. And so the best thing you can do when somebody trips is to help them back up is not to kick them while they're down because and be like, here, you're an awful person. Like, how dare you? Um, it's to, to help them analyze like, okay, what are you missing? Like, when's the last time you did this? What, what tool haven't you been using that you need to start using again? Well, and I think on that same point, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes people like that, or, you know, people in general, when they make a mistake, they're their own biggest critic. They're already judging themselves. They're already kicking themselves. Like, there is nobody, I'm, I would I would venture to bet that there is nobody in this world except for full-blown narcissists and, you know, sociopaths, psychopaths, that sort of thing, <laughs> like, where it's a clinical issue. But, like, nobody in this world makes a mistake and then thinks highly of themselves afterwards, you know? Like right. you're kicking most of the time you kick yourself when you're down already. You're already your worst enemy. And then if you have somebody else who comes and does it too, it just reaffirms everything you already think about yourself. And so and so there there is this common, you know, uh, when people relapse, it's dangerous because if they don't have the support that they need, they'll just jump right back in the deep end of the pool because might as well. I'm already messed up. I'm already screwing it all up. I'm I'm never going to get better. I can't do it, you know. And they they beat themselves down, beat themselves down and then it's like, well, you know, what else what else can I do, you know? Right. And again, that's where that love and compassion comes in versus judgment because if you that's again why it's my biggest regret in this whole thing was the moment that he needed it the most. I kicked him while he was down. He probably already thought all of those things towards himself already. 
And that's the part that hurts me the most is that I, you know, the other thing that's dangerous about relapse, I was going to say, is Uh I think people often forget or often don't realize that relapse is dangerous for um, like overdoses and things, especially because Uh if you've been sober for alcohol or opiates or whatever else the substance may be, especially if you've been sober for a certain amount of time, your body goes back to baseline and it's not used usually with addiction as the addiction progresses, your tolerance goes up and up and up and up and up. So, you know, whether it's cocaine or opiates or alcohol or whatever, in order to get that same effect in your body, you have to drink more, you have to take more, you have to snort more, you have to shoot up more, whatever, whatever. Um, when you go sober, all of that, your tolerance goes right back down eventually, especially if you've been sober for long enough. And it yeah. doesn't take long, you know, a month or two, and your tolerance is back to baseline. Problem is, is people don't realize that. And then when they, yeah. when they relapse, they relapse thinking that they can, um, that they can, they, they can handle as much as they could before. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a huge thing that we see in the emergency room a lot. I've literally had recently patients, you know, come in where they've been sober for months, for weeks, for years, whatever. And they came in with an overdose because they relapsed one time and they did, they tried to do as much as they thought they could before and their body couldn't handle it anymore. And so they overdosed. The highest risk, the highest risk for overdose deaths is after you've been sober for a while. Especially, especially with opiates Mm -hmm. um that's i would say the most common um but like i mean we see it all the time where yeah i've been sober for months and uh or you know and my friend gave me some pills and i took a bunch and you know i took what i normally take and i am now i'm here in the hospital you know getting narcan or whatever um, and that's something that people don't really realize is like if you've been it's the same thing. It's the same reason why, uh, you know, if you have if you're drinking on a fairly regular basis or whatever, and then you go a couple weeks where you haven't had anything to drink, maybe before you could have three, four drinks without really feeling a whole lot. You go a while without drinking, and then you have one drink and you're like, whoa, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's because your tolerance went back down. Um yeah. And so and just I to kind of touch. No. Go ahead. I, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a perfectly, it's a really good point. And I, I think just kind of going back to the fact that, like, you felt, you know, like the last conver- like the conversation you had with him when he relapsed. Um, I mean, the thing that you didn't know um, that we just touched on briefly before we started recording this episode is you'd caught him the one that one day on a Friday and found his alcohol and, and found that he had actually in fact been drinking and was intoxicated. You were going to be gone for the weekend. I was working overnights, which meant I would be sleeping during the day. I didn't know until after, um, after he died until after he died when I had access to all of his stuff and the man was like, and all that stuff. He he was religious about keeping all his stuff for his job and like just he kept all the evidence on himself. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, after he died, I did I did learn that 
it was a three day relapse. So it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which made sense. You were gone for the weekend. I was working my overnight shift for the weekend. He was on his own. Uh, he relapsed one day. Um, when you caught him and threw that bottle out, I'm, that was, I don't know that he, that was day one, but I don't know that he went back and bought more bottles. I do have, I did find receipts of him that weekend. Uh, again, this was three weeks before he died that weekend going to, there's a local sports bar, like a mile down the road from our house at that time. Um, and having beverages there, not like excessive. He wasn't excessive. Um, just but he was having them. So he was drinking that weekend. So it was more like a three day relapse. I do remember that this was the time. So not only did you talk about how he had brought it up with his therapist and had this very enlightening conversation, which I think is a great analogy for a lot of people around the friendship thing. You break up with a toxic friend. Sometimes you want to go hang out with that friend again. You know, you see him, you bump into him, right? You don't, you don't think about them until they're, Oh yeah, I ran into him at the store or I ran into him and they're randomly. Fun. And they're like, oh they're... hey, let's go hang out real quick. And, yeah. You know, you got and they signs. are fun. They're you remember the fun times with them. They're the fun they're fun people. They're fun friends until they're not and fun then, anymore. <laughs> then things get out of hand and you get in trouble. Right. Um, but I do remember after that weekend, because obviously when I was done working and, you know, had time to address what exactly had happened, um, we had like a family meeting where we sat in the living room with your dad and we're trying to figure out like, like what happened and like, what do we need to do as a family to dress, like to help you with this. Right. And this is where you can tell that he was still very early on in his recovery process because he was like, I don't need anything. I can fix this myself. Like it was just a slip up. It'll be fine. I can fix this myself. And I very specifically clearly remember saying to him, this is not, this addiction is not an individual problem. It's a family issue. Like it is an issue that affects everyone in the family. The whole dynamic contributes to the issue in some form or fashion. In his case, it was this pattern of lying and, it created this weird divide and some distancing between us where we had not had it before. Um, And so it was like, we all have to work together in order for you to get better. But he still very much had this mentality that it's my problem. I'll fix it. It's not something you guys have to worry about. And I remember specifically being really frustrated about that because he didn't see the fact that this was affecting or I don't know that he didn't see it. He wasn't acknowledging or didn't want to acknowledge the fact that this actually impacted all of us and that him just fixing it on his own without including us wasn't really going to fix it, you know? So I do remember that happening after that relapse. Yeah. And And I think, I think like, yeah, I was going to say, I think the hardest part about that whole situation is, He relapsed, and before we could even figure out what to do about it or how to help him or... um, And it was a short relapse, like a few days, and then he was, you know... Back on on track, and then suddenly he was gone. And like, you know, like I said, like we said last episode and then even into this one, like he was doing so good. He was trying so hard. He had one slip up. 
And then we were trying to figure out how to deal with that in, in an effective way. And we were, you know, doing our best as a family. And then, and then before we even had a chance to, yeah. to help or to, to figure anything out, he was gone. Yeah. Hey, you know how this works. If you like this episode or just like us in general, you can find us at It's Going Podcast on all the things. Don't forget to check out the links in the description. And thanks for hanging out with us.